Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. This is Notionally Part 2 of the show we started yesterday because uh, Adam just sat down with Lawrence Booth, the editor of the Wisden Almanac. That's the big yellow book, the important one, the one with the dust jacket, the one with the hard covers, the one that aliens will be reading in hundreds of years' time when we as a species have wiped ourselves out and they've come down to try to work out how cricket worked they will still be able to read the wisdom almanac copies of it will survive and adam has read every word of the 1200 odd paper thin pages paper thin pages <laughs> cigarette paper thin pages is what i was thinking of and chatted with lawrence for a good chunk of time about everything that's in this year's edition yeah i, I can't claim to have read all the pages but i've read a number you've read of them all uh, as you you've do read them all. i've already told people you've read them all i've read them all we've got we've got to live up <laughs> to expectations yeah, yeah. I, I, these days I, I tend to read it as a PDF before the fact. So I don't actually open the book too often. But this year, my book did arrive before the PDF was sent through. So I have thumbed through some of the actual pages in the good book that people can uh, get their hands on in, in the usual way over the next couple of weeks. And hopefully this interview might inspire you to start a collection. My collection goes back to when I was born. I've got every edition of the Almanac back to 1984. And I've got a second row going now for Winnie. So this will be her, I guess it's her third Almanac, 20, yeah, the, the third the third she's been alive for in terms of um, them being released. But yeah, this year, Joe Root on the front and much of the conversation that Lawrence and I had off the top was about not only Joe Root, but the the, the trials and tribulations of English cricket over the last 12 months. It's been a tough time for uh, the game in this part of the world and, and Lawrence has articulated that brilliantly in the book as he did with me in our conversation yesterday. Enjoy. It is the final word and it must be the middle of April because staring down me through the Zoom screen is the editor of the Wisdom Cricketers Almanac, Lawrence Booth, the 159th edition of the good book. Uh, I don't know how many you've been in charge for now, Lawrence. You can probably answer that question off the top, but it's gone to print and it comes out this week. How are you feeling? Hi, Colo. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm feeling, I'm raring to go. As you say, middle of April, it must mean um, the big yellow book's coming out. It's my 11th, so I've got a full a full team out now, <laughs> shuffle, shuffle around the batting order, my preferred 11, but um, yeah, still loving it and uh, looking forward to a new summer. And I suppose the challenge this year was kind of like it was the year before. I know last year there was a big emphasis on how, how skinny it was, but in making the, the 2022 edition of the book, it's a, a story of the pandemic still, even though that may not be what we expected going back 12 months when we were chatting, but last year was so influenced by the pandemic still. That's right, and you, you wouldn't think it now looking around the, sort of the world, but a lot, a lot of countries have convinced themselves that it doesn't exist anymore. But actually, I, mean, I, ma- I make a point in the editor's notes that there are more references in the obituary section this year to COVID than there were last year. I mean, it's not a scientific example by any means, but it, is, it was a reminder that, um, it, that the pandemic is, is still here and it was still affecting cricket. And we still have another timeline of how the pandemic affected the game and, and series and games that were called off, so still very much a, a fact uh, well, a big factor in, in the international scene. All right, well, as we've done in the last three years, let's crack on and start with the notes by the editor, which is always the bit that wisdom aficionados flick to first. Maybe they go to the back of the book for the index of unusual occurrences as well, but also they want to um, hear what you have to say and read what you have to say uh, on the big issues around the game. And there was no bigger issue, I suppose, in, in 2021 than the crisis that cricket found itself in in England. Remembering that, and I should say this for listeners who aren't in the UK, 
it, it remains an England-centric book where it needs to be. And thus, with last year being a shambles, uh, not only on the field for England's men's team, but but very much off the field too with the ongoing race scandal. You needed to take that on. Um, Joe Root's uh, on the cover of the book. And I guess aside from him and his personal performances, um, you go back all the way through uh, the New Zealand series to... Um, what happened against India at Lords and at the Oval, uh, losing to India in quite catastrophic circumstances, really. Uh, and then um, with Azim Rafiq and his testimony uh, at Westminster, and then eventually getting to Brisbane and Hobart, uh, the two test matches that bookended the Ashes series where England never really stood a chance. I mean, there's very little uh, to take out of this for, for England in 2021 that isn't negative. That's right. I mean, I, I'm afraid I use the old phrase Anas Horribilis um, to describe the, the year that English cricket had both on and off the field, as you say. And, and the way I sort of tried to get into the notes was to to say, well, someone's got to take accountability for this, surely. The racism scandal was poorly handled, not just by Yorkshire, who've been getting most of the stick, and they deserve a lot of the stick they got, but also by the ECB, who hid behind procedural excuses, really, um, for not getting involved in the Yorkshire situation, the Rafiq situation earlier, and it blew up in their face. We now have a situation where the chief executive, Tom Harrison, is being summoned to Parliament every three months to explain uh, the, the, the progress that English cricket is making on racism. So that's, that's needless to say, not a good look. And then when you throw in the dreadful performance of the Test team, one win now out of 17, Following the West Indies series, it was one win out of 14 when this book came out, or in the, the publication span of the book. And that's an all-time bad sequence for English cricket. We're in an era now where we have, we've had central contracts for two decades. We've got the much-touted sky money. English cricket should not be in the place it is right now. And my argument really is that Tom Harrison has presided over this. And he and a few executives are going to be sharing soon a, a bonus worth over £2 million uh, and it just looks terrible. It stinks. Uh, what staggers me is that no one can see this at ECB. They can't understand that this is an awful look, given that the game has been mismanaged both on and off the field. So I'm afraid Tom Harrison doesn't come out smelling of roses from this edition of the editor's notes. But I felt that his that, that the bonus somehow symbolised what was rotten, really, at the heart of English cricket. Yeah, so, so the bonus contrasted to the job loss of 62 of them at ECB headquarters. And you actually call upon... Um, Harrison to give the money back to uh, one positive in English cricket I suppose in 2021 uh, in addition to Joe Root's runs was the ACE uh, program now an official charity I think I'm right in saying we sport England uh, and well supported across the game but I mean you're, you're, you're directly saying to, to members of the ECB executive that's where you should be tipping your money. Yeah I think so I mean I think they, they can salvage something from the, the, the terrible optics of this of this bonus situation I mean their argument all along has been well that's how corporate life works and, and I would come back at them and say, well, this, this is sport, it's not corporate life. I mean, a lot of fans are hacked off as it is at the way English cricket's gone, just the, the, the relegation of Red Bull cricket to the, to the margins. The 100, which is ostensibly why, the, why Harrison and his, his colleagues are being paid this money for getting the 100 through, which they argue will bankroll English cricket. Uh, future generations, that remains to be seen. So I'm trying to finish that sort of critical part of the notes with a positive suggestion, which is either give the money back to the ECB and you might be able to re-employ some of the 62 people who were sacked the previous year when we were told that we were all in it together, or, or put it to, to, to good use with, with the ACE programme that you mentioned. And I, I mentioned specifically in the notes, of course, that that is expanding rapidly now. That Ebony Rainford Brent has done terrific work. It's now becoming a fact of life at counties up and down the country. Uh, and it's precisely the direction that English cricket should be heading in. So something something can be salvaged from this shambles. Mm, mm. It, I 
I suppose it's quite unusual to have a, a section of the editor's notes. Part two is about Ollie Robinson and the scandal uh, last year that broke out during his test taboo in one part of the book and then having him named as a, a Wisdom Cricketer of the Year in another room, and we'll come to that essay uh, in a moment. But specifically, you go after those sort of bad faith imbeciles like Oliver Dowden and the PM who both tried to drag this right into the middle of, of the culture war and deflect from their own dramas. And then and then following on from that, uh, you use that as a bridge into the second year of the Azim Rafiq uh, story. And it's remarkable, again, like the pandemic, that, that there was so much energy devoted to telling the Azim Rafiq story uh, in 2021. Well, it needs to be told again, and, and you've done a, a comprehensive job of that across this second edition in 2022. Yorkshire's handling from the, the language used by the club to, to the Gary Balance intervention at one stage, sort of uh, their way to explain it away. But your conclusion there is the need for diversity has never felt more urgent. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, typically the Rafiq debate went in various directions that weren't helpful. I mean, to, to the, the, the most obvious example, of course, was people dredging up old tweets or Facebook messages that he participated in as if he's as if he'd ever depicted himself as some kind of saint. He hadn't, and he's, he says, in the piece he writes in This Is Wisdom, he specifically says, I'm, I'm not a saint. Um, this isn't really about him. I mean, the danger is that he gets sort of canonised, put on a pedestal, and people expect him to behave better than everyone else. Well, you know, guess what? He, he, he hasn't, and he didn't, but he's apologised for what he's done. And the point isn't really, actually, it's not really about Azim Rafiq, it's about how the game responds to this situation. And what Rafiq has done has been a catalyst for... for dozens of others to come out and talk about their experiences and clubs are reacting quickly now you know the, the diverse diversification is improving even since this book went to press it's improved you know there are more asian and and african caribbean faces on on boards sid lawrence has just been appointed president at gloucestershire mm. you know the clubs are taking notice it's a bit of a shame that they've really been dragged kick, kicking and screaming into this situation slightly but what, what rafik has done has brought the uh, the, the debate to the foreground and I think we're, we're at the point of no return now and that's for the good of English cricket. I think what you've done nicely here is separate the Azim Rafiq part of it to Yorkshire. I mean, I know they're intertwined but you've given space to Azim in his own words right at the front of the comment section to describe what happened to him in his own words and then there's the, the how it unfolded table which in itself is... I mean, it's impossible to believe that would have been an essay in Wisdom off the front a generation ago, but probably says a little bit about the, the direction of the book under your editorship. And then a second part by Hopsy, David Hops, you know, arms folded, eyes shut, which which goes to the, the incompetence of Yorkshire the whole way through, the systemic failings, really, uh, from someone who understands the place like no other. And then on the other side of it, you reflect on Sid Lawrence and, uh, you know, the way in which Gloucestershire responded to their own crisis there and knowing they needed to apologise immediately and unreservedly to move on. Meanwhile, Yorkshire, I like this phrase, were still trying to brazen it out, as you put, uh, and, and so it went all the way through to uh, the stage where it was a true scandal and it was the front page of every newspaper in the country and leading the BBC television news and, and you know, cricket was uh, finally uh, getting some uh, broader airplay but for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you mentioned Gloucestershire there. Um, I, I just thought the contrast with Yorkshire was pretty telling, and it and it it fed into Hopsey's piece really, where where Yorkshire had sort of put their head under the carpet with the tacit support, perhaps the wrong word, but with ECB looking the other way and allowing them to to mark their own homework, which was a big problem. You know, that they got an independent law firm to do an investigation, and they, to a degree, they hid behind that, but it all unravelled. I mean, the moment. The, the Gary Balance stuff came out. That was a massive turning point in, yeah. in the whole story. I think the public then latched on, the wider public hadn't been following the sort of nuts and bolts of the Rafiq story, latched onto it. It became unsustainable then. And the moment you've got the ECB chief exec 
in front of the DCS, the DCMS committee in Parliament, you know, you, you've got you've got serious trouble. The, 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 the English cricket sort of that was a point at which they realised something had to be done, and they, it, it was too late. Unfortunately, the horse had bolted. They're finally doing something about it. Lots still needs to be done. Hoxie, I felt was a was a good person for that piece because though though he's white, <laughs> some people some people might argue that you, you shouldn't have a white guy writing a, a piece about the experience of a of a brown guy essentially he was well placed to take a step back and look at the broader issues and why was it yorkshire why why specifically did yorkshire inevitably yeah. get sucked into this story and, and he was quite good on that on the sort of the the stuff without wishing to, to sort of stereotype yorkshireman too much he, he was in a position to to do it because he, he's one himself and of course as you say rafiq was able to write the the emotional hard-hitting piece to, to accompany it. So hopefully we got that sort of balance okay. Yeah, and I think the fact that there is hope as well, I mean, we talked on, on the show, Jeff and I, recently about this. It's not about trying to destroy the Yorkshire County Cricket Club and to, to send it bankrupt. And, uh, you know, we've seen that the Lord Patel recently been given the opportunity to clean the joint up. Otis Gibson, since printing, I suppose, has been given the chances as coach. So, yeah, there is that there is that sense that now we are past the worst of it. We can now start helping uh, not only uh, restore Yorkshire to its past glory, and by that I mean giving it the chance to be a proud club on, on a range of levels, not just on the field, but also as a message and a signal to the rest of the country that you've got to pull your socks up, otherwise you might end up uh, in a similar situation to Yorkshire. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there, there are still issues, of course, and, you know, the 16 staff members were sacked when Lord Patel came in and, and sort of uh, with his... his uh, broom sweeping, sweeping the stables clean, and a lot of them are arguing now that they were they were unfairly dismissed. So that 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 is hanging over Yorkshire a bit. That may that yep. may well cost them money. They had a former chairman, Robin Smith, the making some sort of legal points about whether the, the takeover was done correctly, and so on. But I think you know the, the recent EGM, the the, the the changes were voted through by members. Uh, the general direction uh, is positive. There there will always be sticking points. There'll always be people who want to get in the way of progress. But I think the the, the only way is up at the moment. Just going back to where I started on this section with Ollie Robinson. I mean, again, that, that the incongruity of him uh, and, and his extraordinary year, really, in all that played out um, from that first day in Test cricket, leaving the field, the prepared statement, which you actually print uh, what he had to say in that prepared statement, which he read out to television that night, and then all the way through and uh, to the point at the end of the season where he's prolific with the ball and he's named as one of the Wisden Five. And and Vitushina Hantaraja writes that uh, writes that interview and that that essay up and, and did a great job with it. I thought Fish, as far as not shying away from the tough questions, he, he put it all to Robinson, who clearly realises that he was basically a rat bag uh, and knows that the the former self. Uh, you know, he, he needs to continue not only apologising for it, but understanding it better and in turn being an advocate for other young cricketers who are coming through who who might be disposed to, to missing the mark pretty badly, especially in the era of social media where it's all right there for everyone to see. Yeah, it's an interesting one with Robinson because, you know, some people object to some picks, uh, have objected to some picks in the past on moral grounds or we've named a match fixer after the event sort of thing and should they have an asterisk next to their name and, well, you know, to what degree do ethical questions come into the mix? Well, I think with Robinson, there were there were a couple of points. One was that the, the tweets he wrote, they were horrible tweets, by the way, no, no way condoning them, but the tweets he'd written were a decade old and he'd apologised for it and he'd served a suspension. So our view was essentially that he'd done his time. Yeah. Had he not been, uh, and it wasn't for wisdom to punish him doubly, we were looking at it from a cricket perspective, had he written the tweets the day before his test debut and shown no contrition, well, that's a different matter. Yeah. You know, that's a whole new ball game. But I think given all the circumstances... It wasn't for us to sort of double down and and, and sort of take a, a moral stance on what he'd done. And yes, as you say, Vish 
draws those those points out. He talks about them. He says they'll always be there. He will probably always be answering questions about those tweets to the end of his career. Uh, hopefully, he'll, he'll get on the field again, and then the fitness issue won't be hanging over him because that's another that's almost sort of overtaken. Well, that's become his story a bit in the last few months where he, he kept walking off the park in Australia and couldn't get on the field in the West Indies when England were hoping he was going to be the, the immediate heir to Broaden Anderson. Look, he's, he's, a, he's a really good bowler. I mean, he's got, what, 39 test wickets at 21? Mm. I mean, that's a, that's mm. a staggering start. People have been comparing him to, to Glenn McGrath and he, he talks about in his own profile early on in his career, people were calling him McGrath in the nets. You know, English cricket's very excited about him. We just hope he can get his act together. Yeah, yeah, and they'll need him. I mean, England are just so cooked at the moment, aren't they? You referred to the one in 17 stat before, which was the, the last 17 test matches that Joe Root oversaw, I suppose, before standing down on, on Good Friday. But you go back to the their, their reluctance to chase 273 in 75 overs against New Zealand at Lords, and kind of from that point, it felt like they were... From that defensive mindset anyway, and then, you know, all roads lead to Australia, yet they're relying on, as you put it, something special the whole way through, something akin to a miracle rather than a form line. And then you've got the Gabba debacle where everything goes wrong other than, I suppose, one partnership between the captain and David Milan and that frazzled thinking that takes them from city to city and until Melbourne, which is the nadir of, of the trip. And I suppose that one bit of mitigation you throw in there is how much bloody cricket they've played, 187 days since the start of the pandemic, which is 37 more than India and 83 more than Australia. And you end it with a with a simple line. They were knackered and, and they were, but that might be the case. And as I say, that might be mitigation, but they were so far off the pace last year. Yeah, and I think that the galling thing was, I mean, Root came out with a big statement at the start of last summer, which was, we want to win all seven test matches against New Zealand and India. And, and OK, it's a kind of thing a captain might say, but, but it, it sounded faintly ridiculous then. And then the, 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 the very first test, they get a chance to chase Ken Williamson, sets them something quite tempting, and they just decide to block, really, simply blocks for a couple of sessions. Uh, and Root, and you immediately think, hang on, something, something's not quite right here. Then they lose at Edgbaston. Then they blow the Lord's Test against India in spectacular fashion. But I, I, that almost entirely on Root's captaincy on the on the fifth morning when he tried to bounce Boomer and Shami, two of the worst batsmen in Test cricket, staggering performance, and then blew the Oval Test. So look, it was one thing after another. The other galling thing was was all this talk about there was rest and rotation. There was always planning for this for the future. The future never came. The moment they get to Australia, which was the future as far as English cricket was concerned. They then rest Broad and Anderson for the first test. They start planning for the third test. You know, they always trying to get this, I think I say, glimpse of the future before the present had run its course. That was the big problem with English cricket last year. Very simple decisions went wrong and Root, you know, Root had to carry the can for, for that. But what was going on in the, the, the think tank in the dressing room is just dreadful. Really. These, these basic decisions shouldn't have been happening, even batting first at Brisbane. You name it, it went wrong. Chris Wokes opening the bowling and then again in the West Indies when it was clear in Australia we already knew that he wasn't, before he went to Australia, he wasn't an away bowler. Proved in Australia and then was given the new ball in the West Indies. I mean, who's making these decisions? It, it's, we're at a low ebb at the moment in English cricket. And that other side of it about them being exhausted, I mean, you know, Ashley Giles acknowledged they did what they could to keep themselves on the road in 2020. That was like a financial imperative. You couldn't let the game go bust. You needed to keep, the, keep it moving forward in, in some way. And then the chickens come home to roost in 2021. But you look at the schedule in 2022, same as it ever was. And I'm not talking about domestic cricket, just the, the men's national teams. They're going to be just as cooked when you're writing your editor's notes next year. Yeah, it, it, it's crazy. I mean, look, the, the rest and rotation thing came from a good place. It was because the Ashley Giles wanted to look after the mental health in the pandemic era and bubbles and so on of the players. And that has a totally yep. admirable position. But what it didn't take into account was the fact that 
losing on a regular basis isn't great for your mental health either, especially if you're cooped up in a hotel. And what all it meant was England went from one place to another and kept losing. I, look, I, I, I have massive sympathy for the players because Australia had a, a very gentle pandemic, didn't they? Let's be honest. Between the end of the 2019 Ashes and the tour of Pakistan, they didn't play a single away test, I think. I'm That's right. Saying. Yep. So they, they were kind of watching the pandemic from the, the sort of a French chateau miles back from the front line while England was <laughs> going over the top on a regular basis. And then guess what? They are absolutely ready for the Ashes. I know Hazelwood got injured, but they had a, you know, there's a stock of other bowlers who, who came in. England looked exhausted from the start. Australia, I, mean, I think Australia, had they played the same amount of tests in England, they'd have won anyway because they were a better team. But the, the gap was exacerbated by the, the schedule. And yeah, English cricket continues to talk a good game while just carrying on bleeding their players dry it's going to be the same this year and then poor old Jay Root uh, you've devoted a lot of words to the uh, the former England captain it summed up well here in August he became England's most victorious test captain in December the most defeated you know his brilliance with the bat but then the capitulation at Lords that you referred to before and then the overthinking things in Brisbane and you know problems he cited after the ashes that it's not as though they they weren't mindful of them before fast bowling spin let's use spin for example you know they talk about the need to have a, a match winning spinner in the team they didn't play one for the duration of last summer and then they they fly matt parkinson home with the lions after one test match when jack leach is getting beaten up and batters with the the technique for a long innings in a in a t20 dominated world i mean that stat that only joe root you put in there that only joe root averages more than 30 since jonathan trot over 40 rather since jonathan trot debuted back in what was it september 2009 yeah. so you're going back a really long way and and, and root is the only player who stands out from that era with an average above 40 so even players like rory burns who was player of the series against new zealand and ollie pope who looked so sparkling against South Africa a couple of winters ago that they just can't put the body of work together. You end the, the, the section by talking about foreign coaches and, and their success with the England team, whether it's correlation or causation. But, you know, Duncan Fletcher, Andy Flower, Trevor Bayliss, um, and, you know, they're at that juncture again right now and, and Roots made way after all that we've mentioned and, and Silverwood's done likewise. But uh, they've got some big decisions to come uh, in the very near future because how it played out in 2021 wasn't just, is not sustainable sustainable into the future no i think you know historically english cricket's big problem has been its conservatism they always are on the side of caution it's how you end up with chris wokes opening the bowling in the west indies again because you think he'll give us a tidy opening spell it's why you don't pick matt parkinson when you've got and you you give the ball to jack leach who bowls 60 overs in an innings in in the caribbean and can't bowl a side out and just keep putting it on the same spot again and again English cricket's always been conservative. That My point really was that's why we've always needed outsiders to come in and shake things up who aren't dragged down by the the kind of vocabulary and the thinking that, that generally holds English cricket back unless an outsider comes in. I'll throw Owen Morgan into that as well. An Irishman who came in and revolutionised England's one-day batting. Even Kevin Peterson. You know, Morgan and Peterson, before England got good at one-day cricket with only two batsmen who, who were batting inevitably, switch hits, reverse sweeps, whatever. English cricket's always needed outsiders to shake it up. It's slightly embarrassing that an 18-county first-class structure can't provide an English coach that you think it has to be him. But that's where we're at because we, we're, we're always held back by doing the safety-first thing, which, as we've seen, doesn't 
produce very exciting results. A couple of essays about Joe Root as well. One to mark the fact that he's the leading men's cricketer in the world. Uh, so Shield writes that Shield Berry, who was a, a predecessor of yours in, in the Wisdom gig. Yeah, an extension in a way of that conversation in the notes, that, that tension between his personal runs. Uh, what did he rack up? 1,708 runs last year alongside his, his side's woes. He focused in, he drilled down a little bit uh, on the percentage of runs in a year here, Shield, which I, I like. So you go through it. There's Bradman in 1930, Bradman in 1931, Sobers in 1960, and coming in fourth is Joe Root uh, from last year, where he made 26.21% of England's runs, which, again, we talk about the sustainability of the, of the whole operation. When that's the case, they're on a hiding to nothing. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, of course, the moment he fails, the, the whole thing fails. So, it, as you say, it's not sustainable. I mean, one of the reasons I sort of had to choose him as leading cricketer in the world because was because he it was a one-man band. I mean, he was, yeah. he was carrying... I mean, he basically won the series in Sri Lanka by himself at the start of the year. Then he wins the first test in India, which was which should have been an all-time great England result. And had they got a decent result in the second test, may yet have turned into England's year, may have turned out differently, you never know. But the moment Root starts failing, England fail. I think he was, what, 11, 1,200 runs clear of England's next leading run scorer, Roy yep. Burns, with 531, something like that. It was a monumental gap between him and the rest. And he was doing it in the fifth year of his captaincy. Now, by that stage, England captains, I think Shield makes the point, are usually sort of dead on their feet. You know, four years is often the shelf life for England captains. It so happens that Root's now called it a day. But he, in the fifth year of his captaincy, he was he was still looking absolutely world-class. So, for me, I was able to separate, in my own mind, Root the captain and Root the batsman. And they're both terrifying in different ways. But for me, he was he was the award winner. And there's also, in the comments section, an essay by Tim Delisle about Joe Root looking at sort of the ratio and how his contention is that we don't measure captains properly and he's found a device for it by using win to loss ratios and how far back Joe Root sits compared to someone like Steve Waugh who's top of the pops with 4.55 and Mike Brearley 4.5 in terms of their their win loss ratio and he he loved it so much he went through and did it for every single category for the men's and women's game. Yeah I mean Tim's contention was that there's never been a great measure for for, for captaincy with batters, batters and bowlers have, have averages and strike rates and so on economy rates what do we have for captains and his point really was that Root was getting a lot of applause for being becoming the most victorious England captain in Test history. So, well, hang on, what, a, what about the defeat? He's about to break the other record as well in the same year. Yeah, and that, that was simply a function of his longevity. I mean, he ended up what sixty-four Tests, which was five more than Alistair Cook, who was the previous record holder for England. So he was going to break records. Really, it was just that it was so sort of scattergun with him in the end. It was win-loss, and then it turned into a string of losses. And Tim suggests that the win-loss ratio might be a more interesting way of reviewing captains. Of course, there are so many factors. I mean, you mentioned War and Brilliant. I mean, War had McGrath and Warren at his disposal. Brilliant never captained against the West Indies and had both of them with a point to prove. You know, you, mm-hmm. you also need a lot of luck, as Richard Benno always says about the yeah. test captaincy. But you also need to be a tactician. You need to be a reader of men. Uh, Root was neither of those things. God bless him. He, was, he, was, he led from the front with runs, but there wasn't much else to his captaincy. Last bit on England in the editor's notes. Uh, the Jimmy and Stewart. Uh, Farago, which I suppose it's becoming now. You had enough time to sneak that in. Uh, I know that was probably quite quite close towards your publication date, but uh, uh, yes, that, that reference there to England uh, looking to the future before the present had run its course. You cite uh, Anderson's economy rate last year being his best ever and broad response in Australia um, when, I guess it was a ball of flames in, in Sydney and Hobart for the England tourists, but there was Broad holding up the attack in the absence of, uh, well, in the absence of any runs down the other end. And yes, uh, I guess it would be 
It would be daft to leave them out now with their eyes on a series that's three and a half years away, one that's likely to be played with both of them, then retired. Look, English cricket has been planning for the future for too long. Just pick your best team in the here and now and results take care of themselves. Then you can bring new players into a winning setup. I mean, it, it surely isn't that difficult a concept to understand. I mean, if, if the last thing that Broad and Anderson do together on a foreign field is block out for a draw at Sydney, well, that, that's quite a symbolic moment, you know, bailing their teammates out yet again, albeit with the bat this time rather than the ball. I mean, the thing about Jimmy Anderson is I, I feel like we're depriving fans of watching him. He's, he's, he's at the peak of his game. He's 39. Who cares about his age? Yeah, he can go yeah. for another two years if he wants. And I don't care if he's not going to be ready for the... He, he'll have retired by the time he'll go to Australia again. We need to get away from this ashes fixation and treat every series as, as, as important. We have to pick the best team now. Broad thinks he could still go for another couple of years. Well, let's have him in there. England aren't a strong enough team to be able to leave those two guys out at the moment. And you look at the contrast in the next section, which is New Zealand, and you celebrate their success with a scintilla of luck. They might now be world champions in all three formats, and that's right. The World Test Championship final was an unusual week in the, in the middle of last cricket season, but it gave us a chance to look back and reflect on, on just how good they've been with fewer resources that England have got, certainly. But, yeah, you, you even say that when they're thumps, as they were in Mumbai last year, you've got Ajaz Patel that pops up and takes a tenfer. Then he gets dropped in the next Test match. So, you know, um, as you conclude here, which barely raised a murmur, New Zealand have cricket in perspective. There's a lesson in there somewhere. Yeah, I just think they're just a, a beautifully untoxic cricket culture, aren't they? They have a, a streamlined board with, with ex-players, a good split of, of men and women. They're unhysterical. They have a sort of... 10-10-10 domestic system where they play 10 games of each of the three formats. They have a captain who is beautifully measured in Kane Williamson, never gets too high or low. And they've got a, an excellent attack. Um, look, I mean, if, if, if the ball hadn't ricocheted off Stokes' bat at Lords in 2019 or if Trent Bolt hadn't stood on the ropes or if New Zealand had won the toss in the World T20 final mm. against Australia, they could now be champions in all three formats. And that would probably be the greatest achievement in the history of international cricket for a country of their stature in the, in the era of England, Australia and India and the money they've got. So, yeah, it, I, I, you can't not love New Zealand, can you? Love New Ze if you don't love New Zealand, there's something wrong with you. And speaking of the power of the big three, you absolutely hammer England for their inconsistency around the Pakistan tour that, that wasn't last October. You describe it as one of the most ungrateful decisions they've ever made. Ramiz Raja, the, the Pakistan chairman, gave them both barrels and he didn't miss a shot. And this is where wisdom's great, one of the many ways that wisdom's great. It's on the record forever. Um, you get your chance to effectively square up uh, for all time in, in this part of the book. And I like the fact that you didn't miss Bangladesh and all of this. There was a there was a Bangladesh story that got lost last year where um, the reason that tour didn't happen was down to the IPL. They didn't want to piss off India, mindful they want to get India to release their players for the 100. There's this bigger picture at play here. And we also saw it at Old Trafford last year with that inconsistency of the test match called off because India were the more powerful actor there. They could cite COVID. And as you say, when Sunrise's Hyderabad was struck by a COVID outburst, everything just carried on as normal because, of course, it did um, a couple of weeks later in the IPL. It's this, uh, I guess, a very um, realistic uh, attitude towards the powerful and how they deploy their power uh, in their financial interests at all times. Yeah, I, mean, I think that the real politic, if you like, of, of, of international cricket is, is, isn't in a good place at the moment. And, and uh, not many people have 
I'm not saying I've got the guts to say it, but not many people do say it. People are afraid to, to criticise India. Tom Harrison was afraid to suggest that the reason India were leaving Manchester, leaving England series early was because of the IPL. It was clearly because of the IPL. Yeah. They, they didn't want to risk missing that. And they'd said at the start of the tour of England, they didn't want to play that fifth test. They wanted to reschedule it. England didn't agree. The moment India said that, you knew it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> India on the show, uh, the Bangladesh series was, it was a classic. You know, one, when, they, when India rescheduled the IPL, one by one around the world, various international series started dropping off the roster because India didn't want sort of eyeballs competing, essentially. And you say that, you sound like a mad conspiracy theorist, but, but it is the way things are going. People kowtow to India. England have got this pipe dream that they got, the BCCI are going to let their, their male players play in 100. Well, <laughs> good luck with that. They don't let them play in any other domestic tournament around the world. So quite India have England over a barrel in that respect. England will keep bending over backwards for them, hoping that at some point India do what they want. Well, on the other side of it, you, I mentioned Pakistan there and Ramiz Raja. I mean, the very fact that Pakistan have been wonderful global citizens through the pandemic, their willingness to travel and to host, and then for England and the men's team especially, they just couldn't be asked jumping over from the IPL for four days. That's what it amounted to. That would have meant leaving the IPL to play four days of cricket and returning, but before a World Cup, they were quite comfortable in the UAE, and, and so it goes. And, and that's why the Pakistan tour hit the fence, had nothing to do with security. Oh, it was a disgraceful decision. I mean, look, New Zealand made their decision not to go to Pakistan, they, they say, on, on government security grounds. Now, I can, I can accept that. You know, some, some stuff you're not allowed to discuss. They said that the Five Eyes security uh, network had, had, had seen a credible threat. Now, there are conspiracy theories about what that threat was, but regardless... England didn't have even the security angle to go with. They, they put out a very wishy-washy statement at the time where COVID was kind of alluded to. Pakistan had been to England twice during the pandemic. It, at the time when the UK was one of those hotspots in world cricket, they were asked, Barbara Azam was asked whether he'd considered calling off the tour. He said, no way. I mean, England owed them massively for that. And then Ian Watmore at the time was the ECB chairman, seemed to make this decision without much uh, discussion with anyone else. It was called off. Rami's Raj has spoken about sort of Western conspiracy. And it sounds hysterical, but he's right, really. Pakistan are, con- are one of these teams that are considered by the big three as expendable, especially by, look, India don't play them to start with. It's why Australia going to Pakistan was such a big moment, because when that tour was, was put in the diary, a lot of us thought, well, hang on, Australia always find a reason not to go to places that they find uncomfortable. You know, they're probably worse than England in that respect. So for them to go was a huge moment. They kind of showed England how to do it. England owe Pakistan massively. They're now going back this later this year for seven T20s. <laughs> then the World Cup in Australia, then back for three tests to Pakistan. So they've got a lot of catching up to do and that they owe them big time. You pull out an interesting part of the India story here with the IPL expansion and, and what it actually means and specifically its relationship to international cricket. You go through the fact that the, the Caribbean Premier League now have three IPL teams in effect in terms of the ownership structure and how the sums make that such an irresistible thing for, for players. I mean, you cite Rashid Khan, he earned 1 million quid for 56 overs in the IPL against 1,000 a, a quid for a test match against Zimbabwe in Dubai last year, where I think from memory he bowled 99.4 overs or or something ridiculous. I mean, you know, there's the, there's that killer fact you throw in to round it off, and that's that only one series not involving England had more than two test matches played in it last year. I mean... You know, this is hiding in plain sight. This is a problem that we, we have uh, the IPL, which no one rejects the primacy of the IPL and has its window. There's very little international cricket played that competes with the IPL, precious little because of that window. But the idea of it becoming bigger and bigger and longer and longer does threaten international cricket. And if we avoid that reality, we're being naive. 
we are. And look, you know, if we're, if we're all paid, cricket journalists are paid a pound every time a cricket administrator said that test cricket was the most important format. We'd all, we'd all retire now. It's never backed up by actions. You know, the, when the ICC introduced the World Test Championship, they said that the minimum for a series was two tests. Now, guess what's happened? Everyone's playing two tests because they don't make money from test cricket anymore. So they get the two tests out of the way and then they get onto the money spinning white ball stuff and they make sure it doesn't clash with the IPL. You know, I get slaughtered on Twitter sometimes by some Indian fans who think I'm anti the IPL, I'm anti Indian cricket. It's not that. I'm concerned about the future of international cricket, first and foremost. And I don't believe that, that Indian cricket has the, the well-being of international cricket at its heart. It knows that it can cash in in the IPL. It would probably like to expand the IPL further. It's just gone up to 10 teams. The Lucknow and Ahmedabad franchises added. It may go up to more. There was talk not so long ago of two IPLs a year. They kind of got that last year, didn't they? Because they had to split it in two with devastating consequences for the international um, schedule, as we've already discussed. So, yeah, it is a problem. And it doesn't make me anti-Indian cricket to, to bring it up. It's just that this is the way things are going. And the administrators are saying one thing and doing another. Well, I'm going to keep pointing it out. Yep, scheduling, a perennial issue, and it will be for the women's game eventually as well. However, uh, in the short term, where we're still crying out for more women's cricket, a tournament like the 100 last year represented a real real positive of the season. That opening night at the Oval was just outstanding, and then the final at Lords a, a month or so later. And the diversity found within, and you, you reference Izzy Wong with her peroxide blonde hair playing for Phoenix and her teammate, Abtaha Maksud bowling in a hijab. I mean, these are sort of England's women. This is the next generation of England women's cricket. It's not just, and this is being incredibly reductive, but it's not just girls who have come through with dads who played the game or older brothers. And I know that's not the case for every England player at the moment, but a lot of them historically did have that backstory. Now we're getting this generation coming through who may not have much of a relationship or as much of a relationship with the game. And they're finding our sport and they're finding it through vehicles like the 100 and other domestic comps around the world, um, and it should be a virtuous cycle. Absolutely. And, I, you know, the, the, the people tend to slag off the 100 as a concept. My view was, was sort of split down the middle of men's bad, women's good, essentially. Um, and, you know, the, the women's game, as you, you, you mentioned some of the players there, it felt like a game for everyone, didn't it? And that, that was the point about it. And it allowed, I mean, I was there that night at the Oval as well, and it was, it was a hell of an atmosphere, and people were already jumping up and down for their team. One of my worries was they wouldn't latch on to these sort of fake creations. Well, you could see there that they were excited, and I think they're also excited about the fact that women were getting equal billing. I mean, the, the women's game kicked off the 100. It was the night before the first men's game, which is also a big statement from the ECB. I mean, they, they got slightly lucky with the, the fact that a lot of double headers had to happen because of the pandemic. That wasn't in the initial plan, but it worked a treat because... People who are going to the men's game might arrive an hour, an hour and a half early, see the end of the women's game, see it's actually pretty good quality, and they might come back for more. So it's a massive, a massive year for women's cricket in England. I know the international team has fallen well behind Australia, and that's a, that's a gap that will not close over the next few years. But something like the 100, maybe in seven or eight years' time, might have a knock-on effect to the international side. And, you know, it also told half the population in this country that they matter in cricket, and that is... <laughs> basic but important message yeah absolutely and even the fact that it's on free-to-air television that, that's so much and you've, yeah. got a, you've got a stat in here about 41 percent of women's sport that was seen on free-to-air television last year was women's cricket that'll be a combination of the t20 eyes and and the and the hundred but still like that's a that's a pretty encouraging little fact to pull out of all of this that when the england women's team is struggling relatively uh, i know they made the final a couple of weeks ago but again it'd be naive to suggest that they are, are going to bridge the gap to australia anytime soon and it'd also be naive to say that 
that they are clearly the second best team in the world. They're not. Um, they made the World Cup final, and that's great. But the the pack is bigger now, and that's good for the global game. But yeah, the the the. Uh, the opportunity there is 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 considerable, and you did contrast it to the way the men's tournament uh, was depicted. Uh, you described some of the punditry as akin to what you'd see in North Korea from those who have a, a financial stake in it. So you've had a big whack there, Lawrence. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm afraid that lived down to expectations. Really, the men's hundred. Um, one of the arguments in advance against it was that it was going to damage the other formats. Now, the Royal London Cup took place alongside the men's 100, so that effectively became a second level competition. There was no first-class cricket in, in August, I think it was. T20 was not publicised in the same way. So my point really was that all the, all the resources and, and marketing and, and razzmatazz and hoopla that went into the 100, why couldn't that have been directed towards T20? Let the women have the 100. It worked, worked beautifully. Less sure about the benefit for the men's game of thunder. Yeah, and that that sort of uh, uh, we're talking about virtuous cycles with women's cricket. Well, where was the cross promotion back to the other products? And you say here, you know, um, so much for the gateway drug. Like, where were people getting directed from the hundred if they were new fans into the other threads of the game that have been there for, for generations? That that is a, a question that needs to be answered in, in the years to come. And then, yeah, this broader sort of stepping back from the whole thing, the idea that the broadcast money, the insurance policy that the 100 might bring the ECB, if international rights reduce in value over time, overseas especially, you conclude the passage by saying, by the time anyone is daft enough to cough up, the impact on the men's game could be incalculable. And well, that, that's a that's a story about Red Bull cricket in England more generally. Yeah, it is. I mean, look, Tom Harrison may be right. I mean, maybe one day someone will pay a lot of money for the 100 rights and they'll look like a complete genius. But but, but the moment T20 is so dominant as the sort of money earned around the world, I mean, why, why would India change the IPL? It's yeah. dominant. Most other countries have got a very good T20 franchise tournament going. Could the 100 be the Olympic format? I don't know. Is that going to make the ECB a lot of money? I don't know. Um, there are so many questions to, to answer. And the, the, the thing about the 100 has always been it's a massive risk. And what's happened last summer hasn't changed my view of that. So we're going to have to watch this space. It's not going anywhere. They've invested so much time and reputational sort of worth into it. It's, it's here for the next few years. So we're going to have to live with it. A couple of paragraphs here on, on language and specifically uh, that, as you say, future generations will wonder what the fuss was all about when it comes to batsmen and batter and the staffs that played out uh, last year. And, and you kind of reflect on the fact that, you know, player of the match, do we get worried about that anymore? Do we get worried about the photo on the cover of Wisdom that was so controversial back in 2003? You know, it's a nice little whack to some of the worst people in the game there, Lawrence. <laughs> well, look, I mean, it's what I was saying earlier about the conservatism in English cricket. That is the, the the defining sort of feature of it, really. And people hate change. You know, you, you use the word batter on, on Twitter and people say, oh, well, that, that's what you use for fish and chips. They think that's a sort of original point. Well, that's baseball. <laughs> but I'm sorry, but within a couple of years, batter will become absolute standard. You know, in analogy with fielder and bowler, we don't say fieldsman and bowlsman. Hmm. Um, so why why should why should batter be such an offensive word? And especially, it hurts no one, and it possibly welcomes people into the game who felt excluded by it. So, what's the problem? Yeah, that's right. And Emma John, in an essay that is in that features later in the book, makes a great point that nobody intuitively likes batter when they first hear it. It does jar because we're used to batsmen. The point is when you step back and, and think about it for more than 10 minutes or if you listen to the words of someone like Mel Jones. Mel Jones is the reason I stopped saying batsman. Well, at least try to. I know I still say it on commentary. Not, you know, it, it's muscle memory, isn't it? You say third man and batsman because you've been saying it for your whole life. Over time, it'll it'll, it'll, it'll find its way out of all of our language, I'm sure. But, you know, it, it took until Mel Jones 
ran through it with me to understand that the word I used to think well batsman like you know humankind you know human being batsman let's use batsman for women as well she's like no that doesn't work because you know a lot of people will see it the other way and you need to be mindful of it isn't about you basically it's about the women who are playing the game and I think once people take a moment to educate themselves it's a non-issue anymore but Equally, I like that you provide a bit of balance here by Alex Massey, who presents not the other side of the case, but more holistically mounting the argument that cricket people can sometimes feel like we're apologising for the game and like nomenclature might be a small part of that. But I like his perspective here that in his response to Emma's piece, I'm not sure if you had them intentionally set up that way, but it felt like it was a complimentary piece, that we need to stop apologising for the fact that cricket is something that we love and his contention is that language feeds into that. Yeah, I mean, they were commissioned together. It was essentially a for and against um, because I didn't want to just, you know, Emma's piece was very strong, but there are a lot of people who feel strongly about the other side, the conservative side. A lot of our readers will probably have doubts and I did want to to have an intelligent representation of that other side, which is what Alex did. I mean, one of his ideas is that Cricket is inaccessible at times, the longest form of the game. And by making it more inaccessible, you lose, sorry, more accessible, you kind of lose what makes cricket cricket. And not everyone will agree with that, but it's a it's a perfectly reasonable argument to make. And it's, as you say, we're sort of almost scared of cricket being what it is. Do we always have to move with the times? Is that an absolute sort of precondition to, to exist in the current era? So it's a sort of... You know, it's it's not a rabid against progress piece, but it was quite an intelligently argued piece. You end the editor's notes by a tribute to three giants of the journalistic uh, caper that passed away last year, David Foote, John Woodcock and Martin Johnson. And you reflect upon their contrasting style as writers, but also you ponder that with all of what we're conditioned to in our jobs these days, rolling deadlines and having to be all-rounders and shrinking budgets and being a one-stop shop and tweeting and podcasting every thought that uh, maybe they wouldn't have fitted into that necessarily, but uh, you're grateful that they got the chance to, as you say, play to their strengths as writers. Yeah, I mean, the, the story I always tell, and I mentioned it in the notes here, is I remember talking, meeting John Woodcock for the first time when I, I got this job because he was a former Wisden editor as well, and, and Chris Lane, who works at Wisden, said, come come down to Long Parish where Wooders live. Come, come and have lunch with Wooders. A great experience. I mean, telling me about Len Hutton and people, you know, astonishing <laughs> stuff. And I said, oh, I said, so what happened on these boat trips when you went to you went to Australia by boat and it would have taken sort of, what, 45 days or something? Did the Times ask for any words? And he, he thought for a minute, he said, they wanted 200 words by Ceylon. <laughs> uh, thought, what a great life. And it was, and it was fantastic. I mean, Woodhouse couldn't have, he admitted himself he couldn't have existed in the current era because of all the, the things you mentioned there. Athers writes a piece about him later in the book mm. where he, he talks about the modern cricket writer being tethered to his desk like a goat at a test match. You know, Twitter's going on, you're, you're listening to the commentary, uh, you're occasionally looking up and watching the play. And he said it doesn't always necessarily lead to greater profundity. Wooders was allowed to just be an excellent match reporter, did it beautifully, and that time is gone. Yeah, and, and I like that you devoted some space as well. Uh, the Extra Mile, a piece that Henry Blofeld wrote about the infamous journey in 1976 when they drove to, to Mumbai in a 1921 Rolls-Royce. I mean, I think when that story was doing the rounds when Woodcock died last year, people wondered if it was an apocryphal tale, but it absolutely happened. Oh, it did. Uh, and again, a sign of the times. I mean, it's the 1970, England 76-77 tour of India where they, they famously won 3-1 under Tony Gregg. And Blofeld starts the piece by uh, explaining how the previous winter when they're in Perth watching Australia West Indies they discussed going by car on a trip and and uh, would have said well the, the wives wouldn't have it at the time not that he was married but some of the other guys were 
India. There were no wives apparently to get in the way of this adventure, so they decided to do it. Um, and I think it was 46 days from New Cross to the Taj Mahal Hotel in Mumbai <laughs> with all kinds of adventures on the way that, that, that blowers recount to great glee. I mean, just, just wonderful stuff, really. I mean, just 200 words by Salon. Uh, then there's the, the, end of the uh, end of the notes. I quite like that it isn't a whitewash about Woodcock either. I mean, you pull out excerpts from his editor's notes in 81, 82, 84, 85, 86, I think it was. And, you know, he... Where he fell on Rebel Tours isn't particularly crash hot. Whilst you devote space to have him reflecting on Botham's Ashes and England's thrashing in 1984 to the Great West Indian team and you know even pondering uh, in his final notes uh, whether Australia would finish in the top four of the county championship had they sent a team out to play in it in 1985. So there's, you know, he was obviously very qualified to assess the, these matters having watched cricket as closely as he did. But, yeah, you were also happy to, to make it known that there were parts of his career which now with years of reflection don't shape up quite so well i mean Woodis was was a true blue um he was old school and his view was that politics and sport shouldn't mix and that was the view that he took through the apartheid years really uh, and and the rebel tours and he was very against countries who objected to some england players arriving in their through their borders india pakistan for example because of their links with apartheid south africa mm. In his later years, Wood has said, look, I got that wrong. I mean, he was yep. he was very much a product of his time. And the English cricket establishment was very much took that view, um, that sport and politics shouldn't mix. It, it was a common perspective at the time. And Wood was quite establishment in that way. I think, you know, had he written his notes 30 years later, he might have taken a different perspective. Yeah, yeah. And, and then into the other comment pieces in section one, there's a, a typically lyrical piece by Andy Bull around pitch debates and, and going all the way back to the start and reminding us that it didn't just start at Chennai last year, that people have been scrapping about these matters for a couple of hundred years. Yeah, the ethics of pitch preparation. I mean, it's sort of triggered really by the, a discussion between Ravi Chandranashwan, an English journalist, I think it was John Etheridge, during a Zoom chat when the, the discussion was what, what constitutes a good pitch? England has been sort of spun out for the third game in succession. Um, in fact, India couldn't make many runs either. But and Ashwin's point was, well, I, I know that the ICC say that it's basically you're supposed to bat on the first couple of days. Oh, sorry, well, seamers the first day, bat second, second, third day, spinners come into it. But why should that be the case? You know, who who constitutes, who, who says what is a good pitch? And why should the kind of Western perspective, that was the subtext of it, really. Why should the Western perspective of what is a good pitch kind of overrule everything else? So Andy Bull, as you say, goes back in time and says that, you know, pitch doctoring has been going on for since, since the year dot really goes back to Hambledon, where, in fact, it was often the away team who got to, pitch the wicket as they described in those days and they might they might choose all sorts of weird places they might go for a slope if one of the guys like to sort of underarm the ball and use the the slope to break into the, the wickets they might look at the wind there might all sorts of factors came into it so he's saying it's not a new thing and cricket is very specific in its kind of obsession with with the pitch and at least all sorts of skullduggery so yeah quite a fun piece last year you started a new sec i think it was last year a new section in the book where you go back and pick the three best photographs of the decade last year was the 50s and patrick egar the great patrick egar uh, went back through the 1960s this time two that we would know quite well uh, the joe solomon photo which we nearly saw replicated down at taunton on um on Saturday, by the way, that, that run out that nearly was. Ron Lovett's shot there and, uh, yeah, Dennis Quid's uh, shot at the Oval Test match of 1968, that thrilling finish where England were able to, to win after uh, they, they mopped up the ground. But the third photo uh, that he plucked out was a, was an absolute cracker. It's a picture of... I, I, I mean, I'm broadly familiar with the fact that there was a photograph of John Lennon batting, but I didn't know this was from the scene of How I Won the War 
shot in Spain, appearing as though it's in North Africa. But yeah, a, a photograph of John Lennon to represent the 60s, I, I, that felt quite right to me. Yeah, it's an amazing pick, isn't it? I mean, it's from Sidon, it's a desert background, it's Almeria in Spain, as you right. say. Um, a, a bit of a turkey of a film, um, as it turns out. But you've got him playing a sort of almost French cricket forward defensive. I mean, he doesn't look a total natural, does he? But interesting that he would have considered that to be something to do in his downtime while doing the filming. So I think, you know, that there's a bit of a sort of rock and roll theme in, in this year's book. You've know, got Charlie Watson, who's got a, the, the Rolling Stones drummer, who's got no bit, mm. picture of Mick Jagger with him in there. Elton John, I think, pops up in one of the pictures in the in the obit. So, you know, cricket and rock and roll, that's probably, that's probably a piece for another day, actually, now you mention it. Probably so. Uh, sadly, the contrast to, to that is uh, the Afghanistan situation and the Taliban takeover last year. A couple of pieces uh, uh, on that in the front of the book. One by uh, Tuba Sangar, who you spoke to, who works as Cricket Afghanistan Development Manager before fleeing for Canada. As a woman, of course, it's a, a more acutely challenging time for her than, than it is for men uh, in Afghanistan, I suppose. Again, my limited knowledge of the situation, but it's been the catalyst for her leaving and her parting line is um, for us not to forget her and people like her. Yeah, it was quite, I mean, I, I sort of go straight that piece uh, after a long chat with her. It was pretty poignant stuff, really. You know, we talk about, we, we overuse the word disaster in cricket, don't we, when referring to sort of England's test form. That's not really a disaster. I mean, disasters are people having to flee their country and, and Afghanistan women's cricket having a totally uncertain future under the Taliban. I mean, she, she makes the point that, at the time, there was there was some noise among other sort of female teams around the world about sympathy for for them, but it's, it's sort of gone quiet since then. And she she does say, "Don't forget us." And of course, there was this debate about is it right if the men's team don't go to Australia, should the women's team be punished as a result? And she's saying, "Well, it's not quite as simple as that because we need men's cricket in Afghanistan to flourish for us to stand a chance. If there's no men's cricket." There certainly won't be any women's cricket, so she argues that quite powerfully. Yeah, and a second piece from Shadi Khanu, who we had on The Final Word last year, who describes his escape from hell, which is just a, a harrowing tale. And, and yeah, we, we hope that all of our friends who've been involved in Afghanistan cricket have a have a better year in, in, in 2022. Moving to the Wisdom Five, we've already referred to Ollie Robinson. Vish wrote that piece. Jasbir Bumrah and Rohit Sharma, written up by Nagraj Golapaldi and Anand Vasu, respectively. Uh, two Indians in the five. I was wondering whether there have been two Indian cricketers in the Wisdom Five in the past. I did a quick scan through and I don't think there have been. I need to double check this because you don't want to make these statements and find they're not true, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there have not been two Indians in the same year. So that, that it's, a, it's a big moment for them. And look, they were the, you know, Rohit effectively helped win two tests with the bat at Lords in the Oval and, and, and Boomer did it with the ball. They were the two guys who made the sort of crucial incisions in both those games and impossible to leave either out, really. And great that for Rohit, it was uh, not only for test cricket, but test cricket away from home. There's always that disparity between his batting average in India and against, but he came out here in, in English conditions and was an absolute star, as you say. And Jasbit Bumrah, you know, he's going to go down as a great of Indian cricket, that much we know. Certainly away from home, his numbers are remarkable. As a Devon Conways, who made that exhilarating start to his test career at Lords, uh, where... I mean, you know, a guy who was a journeyman, a guy who had to pack up his kit and change countries to get an opportunity, or so he thought, got a second chance in New Zealand and is taking it across the three formats and also was involved a little bit in the England domestic game last year playing in the blast. Yeah, I mean, Conway scoring 200 in his first test innings and at Lords and against sort of Broad and Anderson in helpful conditions. I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> doesn't get a lot better than that. Yes. Um, and then, of course, he makes 80 in the second test. Don't forget the game in New Zealand actually win. 
at Edgbaston. He, he makes a very important 80. And by that stage, he, he'd instantly become the wicked England wanted. I mean, he, within a game, he'd become sort of the New Zealand's Bradman. And his averages by the end of the year in all three formats were, were staggering. So he, he's made a terrific impact. It was just a shame that he then broke his finger hitting his bat in the, the T20 World Cup semi-final after getting out stumped against England and missed yeah. the final which was a sort of, a, I suppose, sportsman would describe that as a lesson learned. But he was, no, t- terrific. And again, absolutely unignorable as far as the five were concerned. Yeah, Mark Ginty wrote that piece, New Zealand journalist. And last but certainly not least, I asked you whether there have been two Indians uh, in the five before. Surely there hasn't been a South African woman. Uh, Denis Van Niekerk, the, the national captain, who uh, was also the leader of the Oval Invincibles that won the Women's 100. She's been a, a regular visitor to this country uh, through the Kia Super League years and with her national team and getting this recognition uh, in the essay written by Tanya Aldred. Yeah, I mean, we talked before about the sort of seminal importance of the, of the women's hundred for, for, for women's cricket, not just in England, but probably around the world. And Dani van Niekerk was the MVP. She was the winning captain yep. um, and she was the leading run scorer and she took wickets with a leg spin. So in a way, she embodied everything that was good about that competition. And I felt that there was no way we couldn't include a woman after what happened. We, you know, the, the five are in a sense a reflection of the story of the previous English summer and the women's hunt was a, was a massive part of that. So Van Niekerk seemed an obvious choice for me. Jumping from the five back into the essays, there's a, a piece 40 years on about the Rebel Tours. We touched on that a moment ago about the editor's notes, but Andrew Miller, uh, who's the UK editor of Crick Info, really got stuck into this and, and looked at the types of players who were there. I think that's something that's lost for, for, from an Australian perspective a little bit here. When you look at the England teams that went to South Africa, which are there printed again, uh, the 81, 82 and 89, 90 teams, some of the highest profile cricketers in the land were tempted to go away on these visits, whereas it wasn't quite the same with Australia. It had a sense of being a bit of a second 11. That wasn't the case with England, where, where multiple test captains were on these trips. That's right. And I think, I mean, look, it's 40 years on from the first tour, which was the kind of, sort of journalistic peg in a way for the piece. We wanted to, I, I was keen to talk to some of these guys before they started disappearing in a way, you know, I didn't yeah. have to wait to the 50th anniversary. And, you know, it was partly triggered by Ashley Gray's excellent book, Unforgiven, mm. about the West mm. Indian rebel tourists and the, the contrast with how they were ostracised effectively from Caribbean society, whereas the English guys all went on, a lot of them went on to sort of famous positions. I mean, Gooch and Embry captained England. Derek Underwood was a MCC president. David Graveney was national selector and chief executive of the Professional Cricket Association. Dennis Amos was deputy chairman of the ECP. A lot of these guys settled back into life. It's not that you wanted to see them punished. It was just interesting that there was this different response in England. And again, it goes back to what we were saying about the whole approach to apartheid South Africa and how trips there were not considered. They didn't make them absolute personae non grati at the end of it. They were welcomed back into society. It's interesting, though, I mean, the second trip, and, and Andrew touches on this in the piece, the second trip to South Africa at the end of the 80s, and John Embury was the only guy, I think, who went on both trips. And he he says something quite interesting. He says, happy to go on the first trip. English cricket was a shambles. I would have been happy as Larry, is the phrase he used, if I hadn't gone on the second trip. That was a mistake. And I think even he began to see that, you know, the optics, which is a bit of a modern phrase, but they, they, they weren't good. But look, the, the, yeah, the contrast between the Caribbean reaction and the English reaction is very telling. Yeah, and quite appropriate that it's in this edition of the book, which does have such a heavy focus uh, on race relations, as we discussed before. I'm skipping over a fair bit here, but I wanted to jump to uh, the last piece that you wrote in section one, which is Wisdom Aligns with the ACS, The Great Accord by Lawrence Booth. Now, our listeners will will love this, uh, who listen to our weekend show, especially story time, where we, where we reflect on 
many tales from the history of the game and two names that come up frequently are Grace and Hobbs and other is Wilfred Rhodes and they all get a run here. This might require a bit of explaining, Lawrence, uh, as to why Wisdom, until this year, weren't aligned to the Association of Cricket Statisticians and Historians, despite the fact that they've been making their various cases since 1973. And because of the fact that you've taken on their interpretation of first-class cricket, it does change the records of some greats in English cricket. That's right. I mean, we, it's been an ongoing debate in Wisdom for years, actually, not decades, about whether Wisdom's statistics should align with the ACS, as you say. The ACS, are the, probably more than any other group in world cricket, have, have really drilled down into what constitutes first-class cricket. They've gone all the way back. They've taken the, the start of first-class cricket back to 1772. So this is the 250th anniversary, in their view. And I just felt it was a bit odd that there was not an accepted figure for, say, W.G. Grace's runs tally. We have a different number in Wisdom and a different number from the ACS. And the ACS, the reason we changed, the ACS have long argued that 10 matches that W.G. Grace played in should not be counted as first class. And the main reason, and this for me was was what swung it, was that he was the only player in those games whose numbers contributed to his first class record. <laughs> None of the other players in those games did. Absolutely ludicrous. And part of the reason for that was because one season that Lily White's to a sort of Wisdom's predecessor, in effect, they, they fell away quite quickly. They wanted W.G. Grace to, to have scored over 2,000 runs in one season. Mm. So they chose a couple of games, one against Staffordshire, one against Herefordshire, one that 13 of Canada took. I mean, all kinds of weird sides. And they lumped them into his first-class stats. They said, oh, great, he's got over 2,000 wickets. Here we go. Now, we finally decided that this was no longer sustainable. <laughs> we can't have one game being first-class for one player and not for the other 21. So we've gone along with the ACS. And what it means is that WG has lost about 700 runs from his first-class record and about 20 or 30 wickets, something like that. And this will annoy people because they say, well, what about the time when people turned up for his 100th 100 and they all celebrated it? And the argument is, well, it doesn't detract from that, really. He's still a great. We're placing statistical rigour over romanticism, if you like. By the way, Jack Hobbs, you mentioned him earlier, he goes yeah. from 100 to 199, which is even more <laughs> agonising. But the ACS have decided that a couple of matches on a tour of, I think it was Visianagrams 11, Maharaja Visianagrams 11 in India and Sri Lanka in 1930-31 did count as first class and Hobbs scored hundreds in those games so we've upped him Wilfred Rhodes loses a couple of runs and wickets it all gets quite complex but the, the bottom line is WG Grace in, in my view is now in his rightful position statistically speaking <laughs> I love the fact that it's a debate that's, that's played out in Wisdom for about 40 years going back to John Woodcock one year in 1981, the ACS had their way, and Woodcock didn't realise, and he had it changed back in 1982. He obviously enjoyed the mythology more than the accuracy uh, on that front. And just on Wilfred Rhodes, uh, one of the games that was added for him, as you point out here, he played for the Hindus and the Muslims against the Europeans and the Parsis, which seems a bit odd, but so it was in his long and distinguished career. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, look, they played for all sorts of teams in those days, but I think that count. Listen, I've lost track of whether the ACS deem that as first class or not. I think they do. Uh, but he loses games. There's a game in South Africa which didn't quite count in their view. So all fun and games and an absolute classic cricket rabbit hole, which I hope will appeal to some of our readers at least. I'm sure it will, as you say, 250 years this year since that game at Hambledon, which Kit Harris, your new assistant editor, uh, looks at. He also wrote about the very start of cricket going back to Iceland. I'm tipping, I haven't read the piece yet, but if it's to do with Kit, I'm tipping it's got some link back to Iceland. 1,111 years ago, but I'll, I'll leave that to the readers to go back and <laughs> have a thumb through. Last thing I should say, the Cowdery lecture last year, which just gets printed, reproduced in Wisden each year, 
was by Stephen Fry just a couple of weeks after Azim Rafiq's testimony. And I went back and read through this and kind of accepting his own privilege in life and his own access to the game and seeing the bigger picture around structural changes required to keep the game moving, but not as an outsider, but not being right not in the the nuts and bolts of cricket day in day out even using his own sexuality as an example of where what what was not accepted now accepted and he concluded by saying we owe Azim Rafiq an enormous debt as well as an enormous apology let's dedicate ourselves to ensuring it'll never happen again Uh, that felt like a a really quite poignant place to leave section one given you went off the top hard on it and you came back to it through the Cowdery lecture yeah I mean it was a you know, actually, I think it's only the second. It's an excerpt of a speech because it's so long. It's only the second Cowdery lecture we've run in Wisdom. We, we produced Kumar Sangakara's a few years back. But because all the, the, the issues you mentioned there, and he did it so eloquently, I mean, yeah. wow, you listen to it, and it's a beautiful piece of oratory as much as anything. But he argues the case for... He essentially criticises those who, who bandy around the phrase wokeism um, as if it means politically correct. Uh, and he, his, his argument is a very self-aware one, fundamentally, and he's saying, look, I'm a privileged white middle-aged man, yeah. but I need, to, I need to open up. I need to, to listen to the people who aren't in that demographic. And yes, as you say, it's probably, probably is quite an appropriate end to the, the section, which is that sort of theme is dotted throughout the first section. And what more eloquent person to do it than Stephen Fry? I'm mindful we've been talking for a long time, so we'll, we'll, we'll skip through the rest of the book quite quickly, as we tend to do each year. We usually get about this far into the interview, and I say, we've been talking about section one for over an hour. Book of the year, Vic Marks had the responsibility uh, in 2022, and it's gone the way of David Woodhouse's book uh, on England's fractious tour of the West Indies in 1953-54, which I've been meaning to read for about six months and haven't gotten around to it, but I've got it on my shelf and I'll, I'll do so now. As Vic points out, again, it's appropriate that a book like this that, and what it reveals uh, has been released at a time that maybe we're more receptive to, to reading it and understanding the messages contained within about race relations in, in the Caribbean. Great to see that Felix's book, uh, Felix White's book, It's Always Summer Somewhere, gets a glittering write-up and had Vic listening to the Maccabees, which I thought was a, a really nice touch there. Um, he says nice things about Jeff's book, uh, The Comeback Summer from a couple of years ago. Lemon doesn't know how to write a dull sentence he, he does pick him up though on on jeff writing uh, of bristol being on the south coast of england vic didn't like that very much uh, he did enjoy uh, the tale that jeff told about the things that he and i do together though which was which was nice to see in print uh, in the book but yes uh, the woodhouse book which is titled who only cricket know uh, gets the gong yeah i mean obviously taken from the sort of greatest well, it shouldn't be a cliche, but it has become a cliche in, in cricket. What CLR James, what they know of cricket, or only cricket know the point, of course, being that cricket is best understood in its social and historical context. And Woodhouse does that very much. And I, I, what, what's quite nice about it, I think, is that you know the, the tour book has sort of gone out of fashion, really. It used to be the case that if you went and covered in away ashes, someone from the press box would end up writing about it in a book. And It'll be lapped up by readers. That doesn't really happen anymore. It's gone out of gone out of flavour. Replaced by sort of, in some cases, bland ghosted autobiographies. So to see this, to see a sort of proper political engagement with a tour that gets overlooked, partly because Bodyline trumps everything else for it for controversial English tours. Well, this is probably the second most controversial English tour for a variety of reasons. 
uh, and, and delighted that, uh, that David's won. Uh, staying with the media, you gave the cricket in media uh, section to John Hotton this year, who went big uh, on the Michael Vaughan component of the Azuma Rafiq scandal. Our cricket podcast was with James Gingell again for, I think, the third year. You've had that section in the book, which uh, says nice things about the final word and our discussions around Afghanistan. I thought that was a nice way of doing it, actually, in, in terms of uh, coming at a more serious discussion. Also, I enjoyed the, the write-up they gave the great cricketer in relation to the way they, they took on the the racism scandal last year it's easy to avoid topics like that but they don't do that even though they're effectively a different show to us as far as the, the comedy element to it but yeah they, they tackle the big issues as well social media with Dave Tickner who always does a great job there into the retirement section Jack Chantry the, the former Worcestershire bowler um, writing up uh, a few colleagues careers as they've come to an end and uh, the international retirements of uh, AB de Villiers and uh, Dale Stain were documented by Dan Gallen and Telford Vice uh, laws with Fraser Stewart I quite like Lawrence that Fraser gets to almost set the the record straight on Controversial moments through the year, of course, Fraser, who we've had on the final word a couple of times to go through controversial moments. But, you know, even something like the blast final last year and the relayed catch that was it, wasn't it, was it, wasn't it. Well, you know, he has the benefit to step back from the six months later when it's no longer a yarn, no longer a media story and and have his say. I think that's an important part of the book. Yeah, look, he's very much on top of Mount Olympus, isn't he, when it comes to the laws? I mean, he's the laws manager at MTC. He is the man. Um, so it's actually quite good to have him, his perspective. And what he does quite well, I think, he doesn't he doesn't sort of pile in. He just very subtly explains what the law is and allows the reader to interpret to a degree. I mean, in the, the case you mentioned, he does say it was a mistake. But generally speaking, a lot of his tweets, for example, will say, well, here's MTC's interpretation. And the point he often makes is it often comes down to subjective judgment on the field. There isn't always a right or wrong. In case you mentioned there was, but but often there isn't. So he, he, he's treading a fine line often. He, he always does it very well. Gary Naylor writing about the film 83. I'm halfway through it at the moment, so I won't spoil it. I stopped reading after the first couple of paragraphs, but um, yeah, I, I know how it ends, put it that way, at Lord's uh, famous. <laughs> and something that goes on at Tunbridge Wells, I don't know, something like that. Uh, technology with Liam Cromer looking at the exciting world of streaming. I suppose this, again, is where you, you've, you've made sure that whilst the book does a a lot of digging back through the archives that, you know, I mentioned podcasts before and social media and Twitter and technology and environment with Tanya Aldred, the third iteration of of that section with sort of players now stepping up to the plate for the first time, along with broadcasters, activists like Joe Cook at Glamorgan, who's going all in and then higher profile players like Pat Cummins. It's not just kind of like Ian Chappell banging away about climate change these days. It's like, so there's that modern tinge to wisdom which has been part of your editorship and you must be proud of that now with 11 editions to your name oh thanks yeah i mean look we wouldn't survive we were we didn't try and keep up with with things i mean there, there is room for nostalgia in in wisdom definitely english cricket is often backward looking that's its kind of default setting indian cricket's forward looking that's how i contrast them usually but if we didn't sort of stay on top of issues without kind of ticking too many boxes because not all our readers would like that then i think we'd, we'd sort of wither on the vine really and, and you know tiny tiny's environment piece is almost becoming the kind of most important piece of the book each yeah, year yeah. because there is an urgency to it and you mentioned pat cummins there the fact that guys like cummins is naming his colors to the environmental masses is, is vital and it, and it does say something about the urgency and australia you know is on the forefront of climate change isn't it despite what some of the politicians think I sometimes wonder how many more Ashes tours there are going to be. Will it just become too hot? I remember being in Melbourne one day this year and I went outside, it was about two o'clock, it was something like 41 degrees. I couldn't stay outside for longer than five minutes. And some people are going, oh, this is great, it's so warm. It's like, this, this is horrendous and it's probably only going to get worse. So Tanya's piece, crucial, and she, she's all over that story.
Uh, speaking of retrospective pieces, there, there is that long obit section that you re- reflected upon on, off the top of our conversation, you know, 24 deaths related to COVID in, in the section this year and probably a, a great many more in the years to come, regrettably. Um, but um, one that wasn't related to COVID, but of course required a, a long essay uh, as a former England captain was Ray Illingworth. I, I just wondered how tough it was to have a long obituary commissioned at pretty short notice given that he died on, was it Christmas Day? Yeah, well, them's the rules, you know, if someone dies within the calendar year, even if it's at one minute to midnight on December the 31st, then we are obliged to cover them in the the, the book that comes out the following April. Look, it's happened before, it it gets done, Uh, it does mean a lot of late work for someone, but someone like Illingworth's, you know, such a towering figure. You know, that that 70-71 win in Australia, I don't think he often gets the credit he deserves for that. Um, I think it's the only time England haven't lost a test in a series in Australia, ever didn't get a single lbw decision and then we was bang on about that um you know he was like well i only had two ways to get they weren't walking for nicks only had two ways of getting him out sky or bold we weren't giving run outs either you know he was very <laughs> actually there's, a, there's another nice line about illingworth elsewhere in the book i can't remember where it is exactly but when he was appointed oh it was in richard hobson's piece about selection when he was appointed chairman of selectors he was asked by the cricketer which of the current players he, he admired most and he goes none <laughs> And that, that pretty well summed up Illingworth. You know, he, did, he didn't always get on with people, but he was actually on the field a brilliant man-manager. He was a brilliant manipulator of a run chase. If England were defending 220 in the fourth innings, they'd generally win by 60 runs. They'd squeeze the life out of it. And Ian Chappell spoke about that, how he watched Illingworth not give runs away while attacking. He was an incredibly canny kind of guy. And of course, alongside Ted Dexter, who was a polar opposite character-wise, who's a, a bit also appears in this year's book, there's a nice picture of them where... Illingworth has just captained Leicestershire to a, a one-day pot at Lords, and Dexter, I think, is the man of the match adjudicator standing there next to him, looking very much the sort of Hollywood film star, really, next to Illy and his sort of workman's whites. The contrast between the two of them said a lot about the history of English cricket, the, the different sort of social classes that we draw from, and both giants in the English game. And so that rounds out part two. Part three is about England. Part four, domestic cricket. Part five, the world. You know, we, we have that sort of traditional formula that follows after the comments at the start of the book. Part six, franchise cricket. I only came into it a few years ago, but Mohamed Rizwan has been named as the leading T20 player in the world. Freddie Wilde uh, writes a piece about him. Part seven is the women's section. Mel Farrell takes that on uh, this year at the start. Lizelle Lee was named uh, Player of the Year, International Leading Women's Player of the Year, the first time that's gone to a South African. Yeah, I think that's a great story with Lizelle Lee, given that much as it was with Danae Van Niekerk when we reflected on her before, she was out here doing the hard yards on the circuit year in, year out, back from the KSL to the WBBL. I'm not saying there that, that, that they wouldn't enjoy that time away, but it's a, it's a different world to the one that existed before, and Lizelle Lee's taken to it magnificently uh, as, a, as a power hitter. Uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, a piece here by Maeva Duma, who we had on the final word about six months ago. Mancads can be beautiful too. I know that Maeva was very accessible to the media after her international debut at age 16. But yeah, um, that, that, that was a, that's a nice little, nice little tangential idea from you there, Lawrence. Well, I think actually, I think it was James Coyne's idea. Who or Tim Abraham? They they co-edited yep. the cricket around the world section, so they they found a journalist to, to interview Maeve about all the all the mancads she was she was pulling off, and and absolutely proud of it. And I know she'll have a lot of support in around the scenes. You go on Twitter whenever a mancad happens, and you know, wow, it does split the game, doesn't it? it? Tends to be England in one corner and the rest of the world in the other. But 
her point was, well, if you're going to leave the crease, you're, you're fair game. And I think a lot of people would agree with that. Absolutely. At least Fraser didn't need to write about it in his laws section this year. At least we've been educated to the point where people understand how it works uh, in the way the laws are currently conceived of. Uh, and last but not least, uh, the Almanac section part nine, which I'll note on the way through, there's that section about 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. 100 years ago, Hampshire won a game by 155 runs after being bowled out for 15 in the first dig. That, that stood out to me. In Irata, which again is always fun where people like me and other annoying people get in touch with you and say, hey, I reckon there might be an error here. Frank DeCaris, his highest score in test cricket was written down incorrectly in the 1931 edition of the Almanac. And the reason I raised that is we were we were telling the story of Frank DeCaris only a couple of weeks ago with uh, Daniel Norcross on the show. He's, his final test match was um, at Sabina Park in, in 1930, which happened to be also the final test match of Wilfred Rhodes, who we re- referenced before. And these days, his great grandson, it would be, wouldn't it? Uh, Josh DeCaris is playing for Middlesex and he made 80 his first half century. So the same score there, that, that did jump out off the page to me. And in the index of unusual occurrences... Batsman postpones gorilla assignment, paid 659, and that was uh, the Rob Yates century last year to beat Essex on, on the final day at Edgbaston, who had a had a paper to write about gorillas, and he put it off to make a, a match-winning ton and, and make his name as a as a county cricketer. So for all of the serious business earlier in the book, Lawrence, there's, there's still room for some fun at the back. Absolutely. I think since Matthew Engel introduced the Index of Unusual Occurrences, it's become... It might actually replace the editor's notes as the first page some people turn to. Um, there's a lot of fun and, you know, cr- cricket does lend itself to that kind of thing, doesn't it? And we do encourage match reporters to just sort of keep an eye out for stuff that may qualify because it's almost a badge of honour. If you can come up with a, an incident that qualifies for the index of unusual occurrences and you, you've, you've pulled your weight as a wisdom reporter. And yeah, I think I was looking at that page you mentioned. We say that Yates cashed in having delayed an essay on the significance of gorilla chest beating for his English language degree at Birmingham University. And it's like, it doesn't really have any relevance to anything else in the game. It's just too nice a detail not to include. And for all the seriousness and the sort of downbeat nature of some aspects of this year's wisdom, we also want to celebrate and, 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 and laugh. A nice place for us to leave our conversation as well, I think, Lawrence. As ever, a complicated task putting together the Wisdom Almanac and perhaps this year more complicated than most. Uh, congratulations for it. Your 11th version of the good book, the 159th Wisdom Almanac. Of course, you'll be able to pick it up in all the usual places and we'll explain that later on the show. But uh, thank you as always being so generous with your time in what's uh, the busiest week in the year for you. And uh, and uh, yeah, great to have you as a, a long-standing guest of The Final Word. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me on. An absolute pleasure as always. All the best. This is The Final Word, and that was uh, Adam Collins with Lawrence Booth. Once again, a a huge thanks to Lawrence for uh, making so much time to make himself available on his busiest day of the year, the uh, the pre-launch day for the Almanac when he's got media commitments out the wazoo. Um, But I think, I hope... I suspect and I hope that, that he enjoys being able to sit down with us and talk about the book in more detail than just the sort of three-minute, you know, give us the, the, the juicy dot points, give us something we can get a headline about that, that, that goes into a lot of the other coverage. Yeah, I think most of the interviews he would do go to the five cricketers of the year and, and maybe a couple of the more controversial points in the editor's notes. But yeah, Lawrence is usually um, quite complimentary of the fact that we read the book beforehand and, and put a fair bit of work into the prep and in turn it becomes the most detailed inter- interview that he that he does on it each year, which yeah, I'm proud of that, that we 
take this seriously that it's a it's a serious piece of work and it deserves that that kind of interrogation and inquiry but uh yeah as you say he's a busy boy uh, in the days leading up to the formal launch of the almanac it's quite sad that we don't get to have the dinner at lords again for the third consecutive year i'm not quite sure how they arrived at this view but you know for whatever reason they're, they're still not doing big public events uh, in the long room at lords even though we're, we're pretty much living in a in a post-pandemic existence day-to-day here in the UK. We are, however, having a house party this Saturday night to acknowledge the launch of uh, the Wisdom Almanac 2022. <laughs> so we're, we're going around to Lawrence's place to have a few beers and um, I'm not sure how formal the launch will be in that setting, but it'll be what we have to do uh, in the circumstances and hopefully we'll be back to um, donning the tuxedo and, and having our night out on the tiles there at Lord's as of uh, 2023. Editors deserve something they deserve some sort of event when they've put that much uh, work into it i I wouldn't say we're post-pandemic i think we're just mid-pandemic but we've given up caring about it that's 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 more the policy setting that we're in these days yeah well i I don't want to sound like i'm being glib when i say post-pandemic i simply mean in terms of the settings in this part of the world where post restrictions post restrictions that's that that's better that's the better way of articulating how it is over here mid apathy uh, about the consequences is is where we are we live but you know that's where humans uh, have been living on on a lot of fronts in our era it's it's the apathy era you know you can you can see the house collapsing but you're not going to do anything to shore up the walls anyway with that cheery thought um, <laughs> i suppose we've come to the end of of our cricket podcast which you know does does so much to solve the ills of the world um yes we're definitely not fiddling while rome burns here uh talking about how derby show went this week or whatever it is it's the final word it's a cricket podcast you know that you just listen to it we'll be back on the weekend for story time and we'll be back in the middle of next week for the next weekly show that's how it will work for uh, the next couple of months before we get back into some cricket touring and uh, and some some more shorter daily shows and all the rest of it the landscape keeps changing and so does the show it's uh, edited by dave collins it's published on the bad producer podcast network and it is uh, supported by all the people on patreon thank you and it's listened to by you hosted by us we'll see you next time. Bye. i had to go about